Good morning, Westridge. Thanks for having me. Um, we're in part three of this series called uh, Facing Down Your Fears. And so, understandably, I've been thinking about fears. And I, I, I like those fears. It's just kind of a weird thing to say. I like those fears that have like the really big names. Uh, and so I'm going to give you a little, little uh, uh, phobia quiz to get us started here today, okay? And just feel free to shout it out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw you a couple softballs early on, and they're going to get harder, all right? Uh, arachnophobia is the fear of? Spiders. Right. Everybody knows that. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Uh, this is a little bit harder, but you'll still get it. Dentophobia. I, I understand it's very hard to be a dentist because everyone's afraid of you. Now it's going to get real harder, okay? And it's okay to just give a wild guess if you feel like it. Uh, Venus strophobia. Venus strophobia. What, what would that be the fear of? <laughs> fear of Venus flytraps. That's a good guess. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the fear of beautiful women. True. True. Here's, an, here's another one. How about uh, pantherophobia? Pantherophobia. Any guesses on what that is? No, it's not the fear of panthers or the supergroup Pantera. Yeah! Um, no, pantheraphobia is the fear of your mother-in-law. It's really a thing. It re- Look it up. It's, Google it. It's worth a Google. Um, I, I don't make these up. I just share them. Uh, here's one. Glossophobia. Glossophobia. What, what might glossophobia be the fear of? Okay, yeah, it, it sounds like the fear of shiny surfaces, but it's uh, really the fear of public speaking. Folks have told me they wished I had that, and I don't, I'm not sure what they meant. Uh, one more, okay, and this is my favorite one, uh, lupus slipophobia. Lupus slipophobia. Any guesses on what lupus slipophobia is? It's the lupus slipophobia is the fear of being pursued by wolves around a kitchen table in your socks on a freshly waxed linoleum floor. Okay, that one I made up, but you get the idea. Uh, this series we've talked about some, some fears that don't have fancy names like those. We've talked about the fear of insignificance and we've talked about the fear of change. And today it's fear of the future. And by fear of the future, I don't mean fear of like what might happen in the future of our planet. Like, I don't mean like the fear of large-scale terrorist attacks increasing or the fear of nuclear war or that I'll never be able to afford a data plan that lets me stream every episode of Game of Thrones on my cell phone. Um, by fear of the future, I mean uh, the fear of something that from where you sit right now, there's this sense that you have. No way is it ever going to be okay. The fear of the future, as I mean it today, is this fear, this worry, this anxiety that's morphed into a feeling of dread. And dread is really painful expectation that what will be or won't be will be unbearable. I mean... It might be dread about 
our finances in the future or our health in the future or uh, a significant relationship in the future. Maybe it's fear about somebody we love and what's going to happen to them because right now their life is just totally off the rails. But whatever the particular fear of the future that I'm talking about might be in your life, it's, it's, it's being gripped by that sense, kind of at an emotional level, that, it, that it's never going to be okay. Or to put it another way, the fear of the future, I would like to suggest, as I'm referring to it this morning, is some part of your life uh, that just feels hopeless. And I, I know, hopelessness, uh, got to understand this. It's not a super fun thing to talk about, but it, 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 it's not a fear of the future of what might happen or what could happen, but because we've become convinced on, I think, mainly kind of an emotional level, we become convinced, not that it might or could happen, but it will. That feeling, no way is it ever going to be okay. This making sense so far? Are we okay? Okay. Uh, there's a German philosopher by the name of uh, Joseph Pieper, which is kind of fun to say. Joseph Pieper. And uh, uh, Joseph Pieper called the kind of fear we're talking about today, he called hopelessness, he called it despair. You know, that sense that no way is it going to be okay. And look what he said. It's just a short quote, but I think it's so spot on. He said, despair is the presumption of unfulfillment. Think about that. The presumption. Not just the fear of it, of what could or might be, but that's what I presume at an emotional level it's going to be. The presumption of unfulfillment. And not only is he a, a fancy German philosopher, he's also a committed Christ follower, and, and he says that as, as, as people who are dearly loved by God, deep, true fulfillment is God's promise to us. God promises that no matter what, no matter what has happened or is happening, fulfillment is coming. But you know how it is. Things happen. And based on what has happened and is happening, we feel like we know that the future is not going to be fulfilling. In fact, it's going to be perhaps even devoid of fulfillment and meaning. That's the presumption, it's despair, it's hopelessness, it's the presumption of unfulfillment. And again, I know, not super, super fun to think about, but just to get as much as we can out of this today, just take a minute and privately within your own, your own heart and mind right now, just, just identify, without saying it out loud or telling anybody, just, just identify one area of your life where you feel hopeless. No way is it ever going to be okay. And if you don't have any areas of your life that, that you're struggling with hopelessness, this message isn't for you, but would you please raise your hand so the rest of us can glare at you? Because we don't like you. Kidding. Sort of. And, and, and I want to come at this fear of the future through a part of this book that uh, talks about fear of the future through a story that I think has a whole lot of really good stuff to say to us about hopelessness and hope. Uh, it, it was the 
Sunday morning after Jesus had been crucified, killed and buried. He's been in the tomb for the better part of three days. Killed and buried on Friday, in the tomb on Saturday. Now it's, it's, it's after sunrise on Sunday. So it's the third day. And a, and a group of Christ followers are going to the tomb, uh, the Bible tells us, to prepare his body for final burial. We go in and go, oh, I thought he was already buried. What's up with that? Good question. Here's the answer. Um, in those days, uh, uh, instead of like having professional people who you know, embalm bodies, it was something that the closest loved ones would do where they would wrap the body in sweet-smelling spices. And it was a very long, and just pounds and pounds of them. It was a very long and laborious process, and then they'd wrap the body kind of like a mummy. And it was so time-intensive, and, and, and even though it was precious work, it was hard work. So when Jesus was killed on Friday, see, in, in the Jewish calendar system, the next day begins, not like we think of at midnight, you know, 12 a.m., um, but the next day begins at sundown. So like in, 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 in the Jewish calendar, uh, Monday begins tonight whenever the sun goes down. And then it ends tomorrow night when the sun goes down. And so there wasn't enough time after Jesus had been crucified on Friday to do this labor-intensive thing so they couldn't do the final burial thing. And Saturday was the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. And so there were religious rules that said you can't do anything that laborious, you know, that, that work, hard work, you know, work like that on a Saturday. Uh, and I think there was also something about don't touch a dead body or something on Saturdays too. And then, so they go to the tomb on Sunday morning. Okay, and um, I think it's uh, interesting who the Bible says uh, these three are that were given their names. One of them was Mary Magdalene. We we know that uh, she had been delivered at some point in her life from demonic possession by Jesus. So think about it. She's sure. That she's on her way to bury the one who changed her life. And then it also says that there was somebody named Salome. Salome was the mother of two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. And she loved her boys so much that she had embarrassed them and herself by asking Jesus to make her two boys Jesus' number one and number two, you know, right and left hand guy. She asked Jesus for that for her boys right in front of all the other apostles, the other disciples. I mean, I imagine James and John being going like, Mom. That's Salome. And then, then this third woman is identified as Mary, the mother of James. Now, biblical scholars debate this and disagree on this, but a significant number of biblical scholars think that Mary, the mother of James, that this is the James who is the half-brother of Jesus, which would make her if that's who this Mary is, the mother who's on her way, and she's sure she's about to bury her firstborn son. Man, Dave Matthews fans in the house? In Gravedigger, remember that line? You should never have to bury your own baby. See, for these three, here's what we've got to get. Here's why this story, I think, can be helpful. Any hope of ever seeing the most important person 
in each of these three people's life, in this life, was gone. Even though he told them, it's so interesting, even though he told them that, they, that he would rise on the third day, see if this makes sense, they, they couldn't have believed him. Because if they believed him, they wouldn't be heading to the tomb with pounds and pounds of spices and stuff to prepare his body for final burial, would they? They'd be like hanging out the tomb going, watch this, watch this, this is going to be cool. I'm saying no way did they believe even the most important person in their life that he was going to rise again and that his resurrection was really coming they were sure that they were going to have to do without him for the rest of their life. And they felt their future in the world was a future devoid of the one who meant the most to them. That's, that's despair right there. I, I, that's pretty hopeless, I'm saying. But then it happened. The Bible says when they got there, they discovered that the big old rock that they used in those days to like be a a way to seal the tomb, that it had been rolled away. And so they go inside, presuming that they're going to find Jesus' lifeless body. But instead they see this man dressed in kind of otherworldly garb. And this man says to them, quote, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Go, tell his disciples, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And I'm saying, just like that, the stone of hopelessness was rolled away. And hope comes into their lives. But we got to get something, y'all. We have a problem with this word hope as modern day people because the word in, in English, modern day English, doesn't mean what it means here. Because see, like if you think about it, in, in, in modern English, hope is, is like positivity or openness to possibility or really strong optimism. It's kind of like wishful thinking. You know, like so, uh, so is today going to be a good day? Oh, I hope so. Really no idea, but I hope so. Right? And I'm all, I, I, I love optimism and I love positivity and, that's, and I, I love wishful thinking. But that's not what hope is. Hope is not just wishful thinking here. Hope is a way of knowing. It's a way of believing. Hope is having strong confidence in something. Not guessing positively. Strong confidence. A quick example from another part of the Bible in, in, in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is awesome. It's Virtually everybody I know has a favorite verse from Romans 8. You know, Romans 8, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8 says, you know, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Romans 8 says, says, says uh, uh, there is no condemnation, therefore, for those who, now, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, just so many awesome Christian refrigerator magnet verses in, in Romans 8. All this inspiring stuff there is referred to as this hope. And look what it says. 
It says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is, not, is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Don't say we wish for it or we try to stay positive about it. It says we wait for it patiently. See how hope there is, is so different from just like our modern context of, you know, optimism and positivity? We tracking? Very different. Very different. And a lot of y'all I know, a lot of y'all I don't. I don't don't know what the person that this book is really about from start to finish means to you necessarily. But to me, he means that I can have his kind of hope instead of just my own regular kind. His hope is way more than positive possibility. It's strong confidence about the future. And the stone of hopelessness being rolled away. And everybody here knows that even in our regular sense of the word hope, hope is such an important thing. How many saw that first Hunger Games movie? Hunger Games fans in the house? Yeah, in that first Hunger Games movie, uh, Donald Sutherland, who has like a really cool last name, he, he plays... Oh, well. Uh, first service thought that was funnier. Um <laughs> We don't like them, though, do we? Anyways, uh, uh, Donald Sutherland plays the evil president of, of Pan Am. And, and he says to one of his henchmen at one point, he says, the only thing more powerful than fear is hope. Now, am I saying that hope means that God guarantees that your finances are going to turn out okay and that your health is going to turn out okay, that all your relationships are going to turn out okay, and that person who's you're concerned about who's kind of off the rails, uh, is, is, is their life's going to turn out okay? I wish I could say yes. But in candor and truthfulness, I, I can't. Now, hope does include, I won't back off on this either, though. Hope does include that, that for those who believe all things are possible, anything is possible. But hope doesn't guarantee that all things will be the way we want them to be. Let me share with you something um, that, that's helped me with this and, and uh, see if this makes sense to you. This has helped me with hope. In, 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 in Latin, there's two words for the future. Now, I'm no Latin scholar. I'm really getting good at pig Latin. But uh, I, I did learn, honestly, I did learn this from a Latin scholar. In Latin, there's two different words for the future. Um, one, one is the word futurum, futurum, which, from which we obviously get our English word future. But futurum means that what is going to happen is in the future is an extension of the past. And if you just look at the past and see how the past is playing itself in the present, then you can know the future. So the future is just kind of a cause and effect thing that's determined by the past. That's futurum. Okay? But there's another word in Latin that means future, but it's a different word, and it means a future that is shaped not by the past or the present, but it's shaped, it's a future that's shaped by the future. It's a, it, it's a future that's shaped by something that's coming into 
time coming into the world. It's, and, it, and, and it's a kind of future that is distinctly and precisely not continuous with the past or the present. It, so it's, it's, it, it's, at, it, it's at odds with it. It cuts against the grain. And it, it basically just kind of, kind of blows up unexpectedly what, what, what you think is going to happen in a, in a good way. And, it, and, it's, it, and, and, it, and that other word is in Latin for the future is adventus. Adventus. From which we get the word we use at Christmas, right? The season of Advent, right? And see what Advent means. Advent means that something's coming. Or more accurately, Adventus means that someone is coming. And he's going to turn it around. And he's going to interrupt and dramatically change the whole direction of things. And the outcome will not be foreseen by anybody who doesn't understand that he's coming. And see, ever since the first advent, his followers have have been called to believe and place their hope confidently in the reality that he not only came, but he's coming again. And it's interesting to me, and again, bear with me if this doesn't interest you, but it's interesting to me, there's a verse in Revelation that says that Jesus is referred to as, as the one who was and is and is to come. And there's, there's, there's three words there, but, but two verbs. Um, so three words, two verbs. So was and is are both are past and present um, forms of the word to be. You know, he was and he is. That's from to be. But is to come doesn't mean will be. It doesn't, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus is the one who was and is and always will be. That is true, but that's not what it says. It says he was the one who was and is and is to come. Adventus. Adventus. That strong confidence, that, that hope. Um, in the Lord of the Rings movies, I can't remember which one because... I'm kind of a Lord of the Rings geek, and I watch them all in, all in a row whenever possible. Uh, but I think it's in the second one. Sam, Frodo's faithful sidekick, to his astonishment, meets Gandalf. And he's astonished because he had seen Gandalf die. And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? If you're here, what's happened to the world? Is everything sad going to come untrue? See, Adventus, not Futura, not what's going to, the way it looks like it's going to work out, obviously, from how things have been, how things are, but this, this future that's coming, this Adventus, is the promise that everything sad is going to somehow come untrue even if we can't even conceive of how that would be. Uh, here's one example of how it is for me. I talk about them all the time. I'm probably every time I've ever spoke here, I've talked about them. I've got two sons who are 24 and 21, and, and uh, one lives out in California in the Bay Area. The other one is a senior down at SIU. Saluki's in the house. Two. Okay. We love Saluki's. Many start there if you finish. Is that the school motto? 
<laughs> I'll have to, well, he's a senior, so we shall see. I hope. Wait. No, I hope. Anyways. And obviously, it goes without saying, I don't have words to say what they mean to me personally, in my heart, in my life. And obviously, there aren't words to say how if something awful and irreversible happened to either or both of them in the future, I can't even imagine any way that things would ever be okay again. And thus far, they're both doing pretty well, but since they live far away from me and I have so little influence of what happens to them like I did or at least thought I did during their childhood years, though neither of them lives in anywhere, no, neither one lives in a way that's anywhere, anywhere close to hopeless. From time to time, I get gripped by the fear of something awful happening to them. And when I talk to God about it, what I get back from him in faith, in faith, what I get back from him is, Tim, one way or another, no matter what happens, it's going to be all right. Everything sad will come untrue. Because I'm common. Adventus. There's this old hymn written hundreds of years ago, and it's got old-timey language in it, but I ran across it recently on a recording by the great soul artists uh, Donnie Hathaway and Roberta Flack. And uh, it's, it's, it's old English words, so, so you might have stick with it a little bit, but it's called, Come Ye Disconsolate. And disconsolate is a fancy word for someone who is so sad or so torn up inside that they're inconsolable. So come ye who are inconsolable. And here's the words to it. Come ye, don, ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish, come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Joy of the desolate, light of the string, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter, Tenderly saying, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Here see the bread of life, see waters flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love, come ever knowing, earth has no sorrow, but heaven can't remove. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. But don't let the word heaven kind of fool you in the way we've been taught to think about it. Because see, we, we, I think a lot of us have been given the wrong idea. We think of heaven as some, something up there, out there, over there, you know, like pie in the sky, uh, after you die, by and by kind of thing. But, 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 but listen closely, if you would, and see if you can see what, this, what, what the Bible is saying in this particular view of heaven that's from the very next last, very next last chapter of the Bible in Revelation. This is a vision of heaven, and see if you can see the connection between this and Adventus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then I don't think I have this on on the screen, but after that, 
the voice from the throne says, write these, word down, these words down, for they are faithful and possible. No, it says they are faithful and true. And see, if you get it, the good news, the gospel hope of the one who was and is to come is that heaven is not out there, up there, over there where we go to be with God, but heaven is God coming to be with us and the reunification of heaven and earth and the healing and restoration of the entire created order, including us. In him. And the coming one comes to reunify and restore and heal and all things sad, everything that is sad will come untrue. The one who came in the manger and allowed himself to be crucified and, 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 and buried, he didn't just come to earth back then. He is coming at some point in the future. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Not in the futurum, but in the Adventus. He's coming to set things to right, to, to, to make everything sad come untrue. He, he, he is not only the maker of this world and the maker of your life, he is the maker of your future, if you'll let him be. And he promises fulfillment that you can hope for with a strong confidence. It's not wishing. So yeah, the future can be scary and the future can be frightening. But we don't have to be hopeless because earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Not because those who are in Christ are going there, but because Christ is the one who is to come. And he's coming here. And he will wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more death. And no more mourning. And no more crying. And no more pain. That's the future. Okay? Let's pray. God help us. I can only think that there's got to be somebody here this morning who feels like it's not just one area of their life that's hopeless. Maybe they feel hopeless about several or maybe the whole shooting match. Please use this time, this service, these songs, this worship, this hearing from your word, this presence of you in this community. Please use this time to rekindle hope that the maker of our lives is the maker of our future.